from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to help people walk toward the love of Christ, walk toward His love. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a quick word of prayer. Lord, we thank you and we need you, and uh, we recognize your hand, your power, your will uh, behind all things, and we're just grateful to serve. And we pray you'll be with uh, everybody involved in keeping the show going and the audience and people who are seeking truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we got sidetracked, um, I got sidetracked a few weeks ago. Uh, we were building a case uh, about Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By going to our website at hotm.faith, you can access, you know, seven years of videos that dig deep into the history and the Book of Mormon and all other historical facets of the faith uh, that make it an institutional con. And that's what it is. It's an institutional con. Um, but here on Redux, Heart of the Matter Redux, we're not going to repeat these insights that we've already made, but we're simply taking LDS Church today and we're talking about why and how it ought to be abandoned by people who are seeking to be free in Christ. Now, I make that caveat because there are people who aren't seeking to be free in Christ. They're seeking to be put in bondage to religion. They want to belong to a club. They want to pay their dues. They expect something back from the institution for that. Marriage in the temple, culture hall events, uh, friendliness with other people, socials, stuff like that. So you guys have at that stuff. That's Go ahead. That's fine. Many churches and people go to church for that. That's not what we're talking about. We want people who are seeking emancipation from bondage, especially religious bondage, to, to understand that it's there for the taking if they're willing to look for it and be moved that way. So if you're one of the few who insists on freedom in Christ, a freedom void of the influences and the manipulations of men upon your life, um, we want to talk about that with you tonight. And we're talking about part two of the Holy Spirit. Why the Holy Spirit when it comes to Mormonism? We recall that in our study of the LDS sacrament prayer a number of weeks back, that the LDS say in the sacrament prayer, we witness unto thee, O God, the eternal Father, which is an interesting name for a, a God who was once a man, by the way. Have you ever caught that? O God, the eternal Father, they say in the prayer of the sacrament. But he was once a man in Mormon beliefs. So how is he the eternal Father? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, that they do always remember him, the, the members covenant, that they always remember him and keep his commandments, which he has given them ready. Here's the part that they might always have his spirit to be with them. Amen. So they weekly covenant at the sacrament table that they say that we, we pray that we will keep the commandments which you have given us so that we might always have your spirit to be with us. And what they're saying is that you only have the spirit if you keep the commandments. And, and so it's kind of on this teeter-totter. If you keep all the commandments, you have a level amount of the spirit. Uh, if, you, if you start to fail to keep the commandments, you have less of the spirit. The more commandments you fail in keeping, the less, the less, the less, and maybe even none of it, you know, depending on how egregious you are failing to keep the commandments. So it's a really tenuous situation relative to the Holy Spirit in the LDS teachings. People will say, as I grew up in it, 
oh, I've lost the spirit. He lost the spirit because you are keeping the spirit at your side in Mormonism by your goodness. And you got to understand that. So first, there's the hope to always have the spirit to be with them that the sacrament prayer says, which is based on their obedience to an innumerable amount of commandments, innumerable amount, which no one can keep. So really what they're saying is it's almost impossible to have the Holy Spirit with you because it's almost impossible to keep all the commandments the Mormons give you. So, and he said, but the hope is to have not only the Holy Spirit, but to have the Holy Spirit, it says, with them, not in them. And we talked about that last week. We talked about how the Bible clearly states that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that Christ lives in us by faith. And we made that clear in the board illustrations. I went to the LDS website and read under the term Holy Ghost, by the way, the LDS use ghost. They don't use spirit. <laughs> Excuse me. I think that was a bit of the, uh, <laughs> forget it. Okay, so, but they use ghost, and I think it's kind of a nod to their belief in ghosts and uh, disem disembodied uh, spirits of men that are flying around, not flying around. They, they don't have wings in Mormon theology. They're just men and women who have progressed or digressed. And so I think they say ghost on purpose for that. Anyway, the LDS website says the following under overview. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He, notice the gender. He is a personage of spirit without a body of flesh and bones. Meaning the Holy Ghost in Mormonism is a being. It's a spirit being like a ghost, like Casper or a spirit of someone who's died and you see their ghost uh, looking like a man. That, that, this is all this teachings, but it doesn't have a body of flesh and bones yet. It says he, quote, is often referred to as the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord or the comforter. The article continues and says under roles of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost works in perfect unity with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, fulfilling several roles to help us live righteously and receive the blessings of the gospel, end quote. And at this point, the article begins to cite scriptures. Now, the scriptures that the article cites are almost all from the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Every now and then, they'll slip a Bible scripture in there, but it's almost always LDS scriptures. So speaking of the Holy Ghost, it says he witnesses of the father and son, second Nephi, and reveals and teaches the truth of all things, Moroni 10. Interestingly, the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is a witness and a spirit of truth, but the citations are all LDS. The article further states, quote, we can receive a sure testimony of heavenly father and Jesus Christ only by the power of the Holy Ghost. His communication to our spirit carries far more certainty than any communications we can receive through our own natural senses, end quote. These last sentences open us up to a, a lot of conversation, which we're going to have in the weeks to come. Quote, as we strive, it says, to stay on the path that leads to eternal life, the Holy Ghost can guide us in our decision and protect us 
from physical and spiritual danger. Through him, we receive gifts of the Spirit for our benefit and for the benefit of those we love and serve. That's Doctrine and Covenants 46. He is the Comforter, first biblical reference, John 14. And as the soothing voice of a loving parent can quiet a crying child, the whisperings of the Spirit can calm our fears, hush the nagging worries of our life, and comfort us when we grieve. The Holy Ghost can fill us with, quote, hope and perfect love and teach us peaceable things of the kingdom. That's Moroni 8 and Doctrine and Covenants 32. Through his power, we are sanctified as we, one, repent, two, receive the ordinances of baptism and confirmation, three, remain true to our covenants. Mosiah 5, Nephi, Third uh, Nephi 27, and Moses 6. All LDS references. He is the Holy Spirit of promise. Second biblical reference here, Ephesians 1. And then they cite Doctrine and Covenants 132. But he is the Holy Spirit of promise. By the way, Doctrine and Covenants 132 is all about polygamous marriage. So you want to check that out. And then the article says, In this capacity, he, the Holy Spirit, confirms that the priesthood ordinances we have received and the covenants we have made are acceptable to God. This approval depends on our continued faithfulness, is what it says. Our continued faithfulness. Under the gift of the Holy Ghost, we read, All honest seekers of truth can feel the influence of the Holy Ghost, leading them to Jesus Christ and His gospel. His gospel, just to let you know, is only Mormonism. So what they're saying is the Holy Spirit for honest seekers of truth, will be led to the Mormon uh, interpretation of Jesus Christ's gospel. Now, I want you to know, I am an honest seeker of truth. I open my heart to God weekly, if not daily, and I say, let me know the truth and show me where I'm wrong. I want to know where I'm wrong constantly. I think it's important to do that as a believer. And so I really do think I'm an honest seeker of truth. And yet the influence of the Holy Spirit has not led me to believe Mormonism and its gospel. What the LDS would say is, you're not right, Sean. There's something wrong with you. If you were really an honest seeker of truth, you would really embrace our version of the gospel. And if you don't, then you truly aren't being led by the Holy Ghost. That's the game that you, you get when you're talking to a Mormon. And quite frankly, when you talk to any denominational type person, if you don't accept their way, you are at fault. You are not listening to the Holy Spirit. So um, this is from the mouth of the LDS doctrine. So let me cover these main points presented here that are at odds with how I, how I understand the Bible. Point number one, where it says the Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He is a personage of spirit without a body of flesh and bones. I would submit to you that something even evangel, even, even, <laughs> something that evangelicalism doesn't even say, and that is the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. I would suggest to you, and people don't agree, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God that God gives to us. 
That's his spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that we sense. Now, uh, I reject the LDS view that this is a man in a body of a human that's spiritual waiting for a physical body of a human at some point. And I reject the Trinitarian notion that this is a person separate and distinct from Jesus and the Father and the three of them make God. I submit to you that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. That's how I see the Holy Spirit. Now, I could be wrong, but that's how I see it when I read the scripture and I just have to teach what I think. I also believe that uh, the Holy Spirit is feminine in nature uh, due to the Greek descriptions of uh, it, it it's, a, it's it, it's, an, it's either it or it's a feminine uh, uh, assignment, not masculine with the Holy Spirit. The only time the Holy Spirit is given a masculine uh, identity in Scripture is in John 14 when Jesus refers to the Comforter, which is in the masculine. And because of that one instance, that we say the Holy Spirit's a male. But I believe that the, the very way the Holy Spirit works on us comforts us, gives us rebirth, birth. Notice that birth uh, is leading us softly and gently and kindly. That's a feminine spirit. And it's not like it's a lady. It's just the feminine uh, part of God. And, you know, God is, is not just a male. God is male and female. God is all things. And he created females, didn't he? Do females not have any relationship at all with God? Of course they do. He created them. And there is a feminine side to God. Even the Jews admit that. Well, I believe that the Holy Spirit is that way, comforts and gives counsel and bears fruit of love. Very feminine. The LDS Holy Spirit is a male spirit waiting to receive a physical body. So the Holy Spirit in LDS doctrine has a penis, just to let you know. The, the spirit shape of the Holy Spirit is the shape of a man. He can only be in one place at one time in Mormon doctrine. The Holy Spirit cannot be in more places at one time because it's a single being, spirit being in the shape of a man. So it's not sacrilegious to say the Holy Spirit has a penis. He does in LDS thinking because that spirit, which looks just like a man, is going to get a body that will look just like a man and men have penises. So that's how it works. Now, the evangelicals claim he is a separate person, and you can figure that out. It's a huge debate in my mind uh, that has existed for centuries, but that's point one. Point two, the LDS website then says, quote, we can receive a sure testimony of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ only by the power of the Holy Ghost. His communication to our spirit carries far more certainty than any communication we can receive through our natural senses. Okay, now that's saying a lot, but let's wrap this part of the Holy Spirit up by talking about the Holy Spirit's communication with our spirit, um, which is which the LDS website says carries far more certainty than any communication we can receive through our natural senses. This is a very tricky statement. And I would expect it to be as error is always an amalgamation of truth. In fact, the more truth in an error, the better the error. So when you can have a 1% error, 99% truth proposition, it's a fantastic lie, right? 
So how do individuals discern heavenly truths? The LDS say his communication to our spirit carries far more certainty than any communication we can receive through our natural senses. This is the real question. This explanation from the LDS website says plainly that it's the Holy Spirit's communication with our spirit that is the definitive way to know truth. But note that we're still left with the way an individual can tell what the Holy Spirit has communicated with them. How can you tell what is the way that I can tell that you can tell that the Holy Spirit has confirmed something to you? And I ask this in all seriousness because we have people of all walks of life who say the Holy Spirit told me don't buy wheat bread today. We have people who say the Holy Spirit told me to kill my children. We have people who say the Holy Spirit told me that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the face of the earth. And we have people who say the Holy Spirit led me to study and believe in the Quran. So how does the Holy Spirit, the LDS say, it is the it was the certainty of the Holy Spirit by its communication to you that you can tell. My question is, how does the Holy Spirit communicate that? And aren't we all left to this, just this idea of, yeah, I think it was the Spirit. What makes matters more complex is there are 10,000 religious truth claims out there in the world today, and many of them say the Holy Spirit confirm that their truth claims are true. So what are we to do? It seems to me we need to establish the ground rules for discerning heavenly truth. What are the darn ground rules for heavenly truth? There has to be some as, as kind of uh, written by the Bible. They have to, we have to have some rules. Otherwise, it's, it's a free-for-all of, of heavenly truth and anybody can receive anything and say it's from God. So, the Mormons believe the Spirit will communicate to your spirit the truth and you will know, feel, that God lives on a planet uh, that's closest to another planet called Kolob. Others believe the Holy Spirit has and will communicate for them to kill other people, and they do it. Some maintain that the Holy Spirit confirms a correct interpretation of the Bible to them and they believe Jesus is coming back soon to wipe out the world. The Spirit confirms it. How to tell and why has God left us with such a mess in this world of inspirations, ideas, and Spirit-led views relative to almost every subject under the sun that are in conflict with each other? Has He done that to us? Mormonism pleads to the authority of men via their priesthood, as having the correct or inspired interpretation of all things, beginning with their prophet Joseph Smith. So they say, our prophet tells you what the Holy Spirit is telling you, and if our prophet doesn't agree with that, then you are being misled. So you have to have the Holy Spirit confirm what the prophets are agreeing with. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, looks to Scripture and their traditions and say the Holy Spirit confirms through our popes and patriarchs that this is the way by the traditions.
Of course, Protestantism embraces scripture and scripture alone and suggests that the Holy Spirit confirms all heavenly truths in scripture and how to understand and interpret it. So again, I know this is repetitive. How can we freaking tell? Of all the questions I have been asked over the course of ministry with a lot of people, especially in the past, this is in the top five, this question. How can I tell what is biblical, heavenly sent truth? First of all, stay with me. Here's how you tell. There is a fruit of the Spirit. There's a fruit of it. Scripture talks about it. If the Spirit's involved, the Spirit provides a fruit that comes with what it is supporting and suggesting. When the Spirit is present and speaking to us, the fruit is manifest, meaning it's present. And that fruit is with you in what the Spirit is telling you and suggesting. What are the fruits? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, against such there is no law. When a man says, and their prophet says, we are to have many wives, the fruit of the Spirit would say, that doesn't sound like true love, agape love. Uh, it doesn't sound like real, sacrificial, holy, selfless love. And you can say, therefore, that can't be true. Do you get it? So even though polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, which the, which the Protestants would agree, the Bible's everything. You got to say the Bible. Polygamy is mentioned in there. I mean, David participated. Abraham participated. It's in there. So therefore, and the Mormons say, see, and the Protestants say, well, and what do you do? But the fruit of the Spirit tells you that even though it's in the Bible, that isn't conforming to what the Spirit would tell you. When Brigham Young talks about throwing javelins through the hearts of a mixed race couple, the fruit of the Spirit said, no, no, that's not right. Jesus came a long time ago. The fruit of the Spirit's always been the same. Brigham, that's not good. So you have the fruit of the Spirit telling you no. And when black people are excluded from religious rites and rituals, the fruit of the Spirit says not good. Similarly, in the Christian faith, when we look at people and we condemn them and we say they are hellbound and we say that they are not worthy of God or Christ and they can't come into the church, it's going against the fruit of the Spirit. It's saying that you're misinterpreting the Scripture when the fruit of the Spirit isn't backing up your position. You see? That's what happened to me just as a personal aside when it came to eternal punishment. It's what happened to me when it came to understanding the... Uh, the gospel message of the faith. See, when I was Mormon, the gospel message was, uh, we all once lived with God and you came down here and you were part of the special team that believed right and you got a body, so you're special, thumbs up, and the rest of the world, if they don't convert, they're not. And so what was the fruit of that teaching in my life? It was arrogance because I could say, I'm LDS, I have the truth, those guys don't, look at them drinking their beer, I'm better than they were. I was valiant in the pre-existence. So the teaching led to pride, which is antithetical to the spirit. 
And so the fruit of the Spirit's not present in that teaching. I should have known that's not good. When I came out of Mormonism and I joined Christianity, I, I embraced for a season Calvinism. And what did the idea of following a God who created everybody and, and assigned some to heaven and most to eternal, purposeful, burning, screaming hell, and he did it for his own good pleasure, what did that do in me, that doctrine, when I, when I embraced it for a short season? It made me a jerk. It made me uncaring for the world that's going to burn because my God doesn't care for the world that's going to burn. He can't even save him. In fact, he doesn't want to save him and he doesn't save him. So why should I save him? And the fruit of the spirit was not being produced by that teaching. So whatever you have placed before you by religious leaders, pastors, bishops, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, whoever it is, you take the teaching, you bring it into your heart, you test all things, and you see, what is this producing in me? If it's not the fruit of the Spirit, you know that it's not right. Because God is love. And all those things will be proven right. So, this leads us to the second way to look at heavenly provided truth. Which we will end here with in part one tonight. Is the thing presented and seconded in a reasonable, contextual, rightly exegeted interpretation of Scripture. Of course, then we have to ask, what is Scripture? If you're looking for justification for taking on many wives, for example, and you consider the Doctrine and Covenants a viable Scripture, then you can use your Scripture to support your stance. But if you take the first rule, which I just said, and these rules go together, and you say, is the practice on taking wives loving as Scripture defines God's love? Then one of your witnesses fails to support your teaching on taking more wives. You might be able to support it with Scripture, but does the fruit of the Spirit also? There's your two witnesses. And if the fruit of the Spirit is not supporting taking on new wives, multiple wives, then you know there's something wrong with your two witnesses, even if you can find it in Scripture. Get it? But let's say for argument's sake that the scripture is only the Bible, which I believe. And we are asking about taking on other wives. The fruit of the Spirit says no. If the Bible is to be considered reliable, then it would have to say no too. You see, you're not going to have the Bible say it's good. And, and you're not going to have the Spirit say it's bad. They will support each other. So we look to the Bible reasonably and contextually and with sound exegesis of the passages and discover what it actually has to say about taking on extra wives. Bias is removed and most people taking the two rules of thumb, what it says contextually and is the fruit of the spirit behind it, would realize that Joseph Smith's commandment in Doctrine and Covenants 132 of taking on multiple wives is lacking. And you have your answer right there by that method I just gave you. So does the teaching bear the fruit of the Spirit? And second, can a teaching be supported by a reasonable contextual exegetical analysis of Scripture? One final point on Scripture I have to make. Paul supplies us with the Protestant Sola Scriptura mantra of what Scripture is. People cite it all the time. 2 Timothy 3.16 
It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This does not mean every word in the Bible is Scripture. That's what people do. They take that passage, they say all Scripture, and they, they, they are trying to tell you this whole book, which is Scripture, because I'm reading the Scripture and it's in the Bible, is Scripture. Let me explain to you how that's not true. The, new, the Bible, uh, the New Testament is made of 177,000 Greek words, okay? If you take those Greek words and then you read them in the English, you're reading 800,000 English words. So from 177,000 Greek words to 800,000 translated English words. That's like uh, almost four times the number of words that the English use to explain what the Greeks said. You're trying to suggest that the translators too were all inspired when they translated from the original manuscripts. That is not true. In fact, when Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, what he's talking about was the contents of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Also, when he writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, the better Greek, non-English way to read that passage is everything that is scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. Or whatever scripture is inspired by God is profitable. Not everything in the book, but all things that are inspired by God. And this leaves us open to the question, is this set of writings that I am reading inspired by God? The zealous answer is yes, yes, yes. Every word of the Bible is inspired by God and can be trusted. But even Paul rejects this fanatical notion. He rejects it himself when he admits that he includes things that aren't scripture. So we're going against Paul who says, yeah, this is just my opinion. A bit confusing? It is. The Bible is inspired. It's the living word of God, read by the Spirit, confirmed by the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible can be interpreted properly as to what it's saying to you in your Christian life. Be ready to change your mind on things as you read that word. It's the living word. That means as it lives, it grows. You grow, you change with it. If you use it as this fixed set of rules, not by the Spirit, and ignoring the fruit of the Spirit, you get in real trouble. So listen, I want to hear your comments below. I want to address them next week here on Heart of the Matter. And anything you have to say on this subject or anything else, we love to talk about it. We really appreciate what you guys have to say because you bring up great points and uh, keep doing it. We will see you tomorrow night.